welcome to the Business Leader Podcast. My name is Serena, and today our guest is the co-founder and CEO of Darcy, an AI music composition platform. She is a vocal coach at the Brit School of Performing Arts, having worked with artists signed to record labels, including Dirty Hit, Atlantic, Infectious, and Square Leg Records, and is a music consultant for the music exam body, ABRSM. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest episodes. We'll love to hear your feedback. Email questions at businessleader.co.uk to get in touch. And now it's time to welcome Rachel Lisk to the podcast. Welcome, Rachel. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Delighted to be here. Thank you. I just want to ask you a little bit about your journey and how you have ended up in the quite unique position of working within tech and music. So what does that journey look like? That's a great question. Um, It's been a lifelong journey, I suppose, and where, where we've got to now is the kind of not the final act, but one, one of the later acts, I suppose. But I grew up in the north of England in a town called Blackburn. So a uh, northern town with from a very musical family. So my mother was a trained concert pianist. My dad was very musical, but he was actually from uh, worked in finance. So not so much um, a performer or a musician himself, but had a, a massive appreciation for music and from that young age and within within the family, I suppose we were slightly different in, in, in our day-to-day activities. There were always shows being put on or um, music being written or conductors coming over for dinner parties. You know, so music was was a massive a massive part of growing up. From a young age, I was always singing. I was always performing. I was obsessed with everything to do with musical theatre, obsessed with everything to do with music full stop and would watch musicals on loop, you know, just to get to the end of a, a musical and then rewind and start it again. And this would drive my brother absolutely insane <laughs> because he... Um, he was also a musician. He was a bit older than me and he was a composer. So we can kind of get back to the relationship with him. But yeah, from a young age, music was was a, a, a massive part of our lives. I went to a specialist music school in Manchester, was really um, fortunate enough to go there for five years. Um, I attended there from when I was about 13. That's Cheatham School of Music. I was there as a sax player and as a singer to begin with. I was actually one of the youngest singers that they'd taken. It was quite unusual for a singer to be taken in middle school. They would normally attend in sixth form, but I was joint first study earlier on. But as a result of that, actually, I got quite a unique learning experience because I was put in uh, the alto part of the choir instead of soprano, so I wouldn't be competing with the other voices. And as a result of that, I I learned to sight sing and, and to, to think of harmony differently from quite a young age. And my experience of that was, was really beneficial for later. In sixth form, I changed actually and then did first study composition and then went on to the Royal Academy of Music in London to study composition. And I had a fabulous time there working with amazing uh, musicians, recording, writing, um, performing, 
And then that led me after the the academy to uh, straight away go and work for a film composer called Trevor Jones, which was a fantastic experience to see the sheer amount of music that needed to be written as quickly as it needed to be written and as efficiently as it needed to be written. And, and he was um, he was a really inspiring guy. He actually wrote the music to one of my favourite films that I would put on repeat as, as a kid, Labyrinth. So it was a real kind of a starstruck moment that I went to be his uh, music assistant, which was which was really special. So that was my kind of musical background and training, a lot of kind of practice, a lot of um, writing, singing, performing. But then bizarrely, when I left um, that role with Trevor, I moved to Berlin to work remotely as an orchestrator because I could, I didn't have to be in London to, to orchestrate. And then from there, um, it sounds a bit strange, but one of my good friends invited me to Barcelona to actually set up a smoothie shop <laughs> on the beach. So I went from working really uh, kind of full on practice, composition, uh, music assistant to then going and doing a business plan from scratch. I was only, you know, 22, 23 at the time, um, creating this massive document, going and finding investment, finding uh, premises, designing menus, doing all of this stuff, which was completely rogue, I suppose, but an amazing um, opportunity to learn and to speak with people who were from a different uh, upbringing to mine. That was back in 2007, 2008 over in Spain. And so for one reason or another, that uh, didn't go very far. We ended up closing the shop, but it was a real massive learning experience for me. And, you know, being able to to have that as, as in my arsenal going forward led me to do several other things that I would not necessarily have done afterwards. Namely, when we got back from Spain, I met my other half and together we worked on a music festival called In the Woods that ran for 10 years. And that grew from a tiny, tiny party, basically, in in the field with some friends to a full blown music festival with two stages, thousands of um, guests and bringing in those kind of problem solving team management things I'd learned from the smoothie shop, being able to kind of help help the In The Woods team scale and become more efficient in processes and production, et cetera, throughout those 10 years. That was an amazing part of uh, my kind of experience with business. And then from there, obviously working with the wonderful Associated Boards, they asked me to come in as a vocal consultant on their brand new Singing for Musical Theatre syllabus. And this was a really special moment because as a kid, if I'd have had that, I would have been... Um, who knows what different path I would have taken. I tra- was trained quite classically, but all I wanted to do uh, was sing musical theatre. So I was really passionate about um, working with the Associated Board to have this musical theatre and to have this syllabus and to have this type of music available for singers and young singers to to express and, and sing what they want to sing and have fun with their voices. So that was a really special um, time designing the syllabus with them. Lots of experimentation, lots of feedback, uh, working with other uh, wonderful music uh, consultants and vocal consultants, which kind of then led me to, it's a bit of a long story, isn't it? <laughs> led me to working um, with MXX, which is a music editing company, which is, we, we can talk a bit more about later because that part of the story is quite prevalent in, in the history of my I suppose, my career. But that was then looking at more music information retrieval and data sets and AI and technology. But that was very, it's about music editing rather than music creation. 
so I uh, led the MIR and the the analysts there at MXX to then feed into eventually coming around to Darcy. So a bit of a long story, but a, a kind of a, a mix of technology and music at the same time, which is essentially what Darcy is. So it all makes sense. By the sounds of it, in your story, you've had these moments where you have started your own business or your own event which has kind of, I guess, led you to where you are now, having founded Darcy and, and working as the CEO. But all of those different things that you started were very different to each other. I'm wondering if you always wanted to be a CEO or you always had in your mind that you were going to found your own business at this point. It's a great question. And I actually said it to someone the other day. It's like, when did I wake up and decide to be a CEO? I don't think it was a decision of or something that I had within me, you know, as a an ambition for my entire life. I think what is interesting about that is that it's I, I need to mention that the co-founder is my big brother that I chatted about earlier. So Joe Lisk, Darcy is his invention. What was interesting about this is, is without realizing it, I've, you know, that phrase of I've been training my whole life for this moment. It's actually really true in this case, because from that really young age, Joe was my first composition teacher. He taught me how to compose and I was the human experiment as such behind the Darcy system. So I remember my first experience of that was maybe six or seven years old. Um, (laughs) He was let's say, slightly tired of the musical theatre, I suppose, on the TV. And so it was time for my education in Star Wars. So he um, put Star Wars on and it took us a whole day to watch this one film because it wasn't about just the characters and who the man in the scary Darth Vader costume was. He would stop the video and rewind and stop and pause and every single second of the musical score we would discuss and think about and what's that saying and how is it saying it and what musically is happening. So he'd been kind of working and researching um, the Darcy system his entire life and taught me to compose as he was thinking about how we would uh, create this AI tool. So from that, I think understanding his system and being taught as he was researching and off, you know, he's a whole podcast in himself, how he went off and studied to, and, you know, brought in the computer programming and and software development, et cetera. But I think what's interesting is that as as a team of co-founders, we have been able to give each other the space to now be able to work on Darcy together and we're not crossing over each other's toes on, on skill level, but we're actually both being able to give each other space to do what's needed for the company. But as far as being the CEO and going, oh, have I, did I decide to do it one day? I think between us, there's no one else who could do it. And I think it's the our journeys to get us to where we've got is such a unique combination of, of, of a recipe that it's, it's, you know, the barrier to entry for other people on this would be quite high because of that 30 years of research and 30 years of working together. So we're, we're very fortunate to have that relationship together to be able to do what we're doing now. I just want to come back to the fact that in your journey, so it was primarily music and now tech is a massive part of it. 
Do you feel as though there are any characteristics that you had already from being a composer, from being a part of the music world that now translates very well to the tech aspect of the business? Absolutely. I absolutely think that that there is. So Darcy is within a wider collective of of companies and of, of minds, and there's some real cognitive diversity in there. We are obviously a music company, but within TMC Squared, which is the kind of umbrella company, there are finance companies, there are media companies based all around AI. Now, what when it comes to Darcy and, and transferring uh, the music into the tech, I think what we're doing and what all the companies are doing is that we're looking at systems and we're looking at problems and we're looking at exploration into ways and into systems that might not exist that could exist. So what we're able to do, and it's brilliant talking to the other CEOs and the other people who work within um, that umbrella company, you never know from a conversation what you're going to learn or what you might be able to give to someone else as well. You know, we within the music, we spot patterns we're thinking about how music is used to emotionally communicate when you talk to someone who runs a trading ai they go well actually i could really use this this is patterns it's it's, it's another way of, of spotting things and thinking about things and between us we're able to get out of a specific music bubble or a specific finance bubble or a specific whatever bubble it may be whether it be food tech or media and we're able to communicate and and learn from each other and problem solve kind of cross problem solve together with some of the challenges between the music and the tech are not the egos. I wouldn't say the egos, but the way of working. So obviously musicians and musicology in a room with coders and um, people who are from more of a a computer background to begin with, we thought, oh, well, is this going to be a boundary that we won't be able to combine, but it's actually the opposite. You know, the, the composers are becoming coders, the coders are becoming composers and that, that communication together, musicians are used to collaborating and, and coders have the problem solving intelligence to, to be able to respond to that well. So together, this kind of mix of the music and the technology is actually a really wonderful and really powerful thing. But we're always curious and we're always challenging. Is, is, this, is this a problem that has to be solved this way? Or can we together think, think of a way that we can look at this differently? So it can be quite empowering, really. You mentioned there that a part of the technology is its ability to pick up patterns. And I'm wondering where this technology gets its information from. So do you look at popular music and mainstream music to get that information from? And is copyright, for example, or the ethical consequences of AI something that you have had to consider during the process of building this technology? Sure. Uh, It's a great question. And actually, I combined a few of the companies together there when I was just talking about the pattern spotting. So Big Brother Joe originally went to his business partner with Darcy and the tech behind Darcy seven or eight years ago, which was music creation. Back then, the world is not quite the way it looks now, and it wasn't quite ready for music creation to be in the same sentence as AI. What it was ready for was being able to edit music easier. So they pivoted 
and through, you know, creating patents in onset detection, you know, music segmentation, they were looking at music that already existed and going, okay, well, what can, what can we learn from this and how can we edit it to make that more, you know, um, accessible for whether that be on an advert or a TikTok video. That formed the basis of an awful lot of lessons that we've learned for Darcy, but the system isn't quite the same. What we have is a bespoke programming language. And with Darcy, we express musical composition options is the best way to say it. Every composer, when they're writing, they have an option of of what notes they can choose. There's never only just one size fits all approach. And these options have, have been learned whether that be aesthetic judgment or whether that be experience of, okay, well, I need to have this chugging bass line over here against these drums to create this car chase. There's, there's options that a composer goes through. So with Darcy, the data set that we are creating is that we are encoding these musical options in order for them to be mixed as briefs in different places. That's very high level what Darcy does. So as far as copyright and as far as AI and the music industry, What's really interesting about this is that our system really heavily relies on composers and it heavily relies on that thought process and that intense and that meta level of expression to be central to the system. It's not just machine learning taking a load of scores or it's not just trying to find just the patterns alone. It's the higher level of of, of meta creation. But all of that has been based on going via this other company to go, right, this is how we would look at technologically. This is how we're looking at how music can be edited. This is how music can be combined. Okay, now how are we going to create? So bringing the two worlds together. For the copyright as well, the great thing about Darcy is that nothing's actually written yet until it's written. So it's not stitching things together or it's not just looking at a load of scores and kind of seeing what would, what the next version of that score would be. It's combining the composer's intent. But there's a great quote, um, I think it was from a guy called Chris Cook, but basically the music industry is a series of um, technological steps on what is how music is performed or experienced or heard or written. And so technology is very crucial to the development of the music industry and how we can intelligently use technology to make the music intelligent is what we're all about it's not about oh this is a threat to us this is going to actually make music creation worse it's the complete opposite it's supposed to empower and to allow more creation and more exploration and more ideas to be expressed rather than the opposite so we see this is the next step in those those technological steps that who you know it, that are absolutely necessary to take music and to make music as intelligent as lots of other things that are, you know, arts, drama, act, all the rest of it, that everything within the arts world, why should music be left behind? So I think it's being brave enough to explore that and embrace it. I just uh, want to pick on something that you said about AI and music not being able to exist in the same sentence without a certain kind of backlash or criticism. Music is a very emotive thing for a lot of people and it's very subjective in terms of people's taste and in terms of the way that people create music as well. It's interesting now to see that machines might be able to make music in the same way that people do with that same level of intent, as you put it, perhaps from the music industry. Have you gotten much backlash because it is quite unconventional at this point in time and because music is so emotional? 
In all honesty, if you'd have asked me that question a couple of years ago, I might have a different answer. But right now, no. Everyone we're speaking to is really like us, curious, is is like us wanting to explore where this can go. And that uh, that might be uh, composers themselves, musicians themselves. It's people are interested in this, but they're interested in how it can help them. You know, I, I work alongside a lot of uh, composers within the industry who write to briefs and who it's their livelihood, it's their world. At the moment, with the way this world is looking, the need for ever, you know, the amount of music that is needed for whether that be for the metaverse or for gaming, there is no way. And I think people are realizing there's no way that them as individuals can provide the sheer amount of music and sheer amount of bespoke personalized music that people are going to want. And also as creators, uh, content creators are becoming more and more uh, a driving force within the world. They want to have some control over what the music that they use say too. So these composers uh, that we're talking to and we're working with producers that we're talking to and working with are quite excited because what Darcy is offering is a way for them to be them, but just a hell of a lot more. You know, they they write what they're writing anyway, but if there's a way that they can encode that and, and express that so that that can be briefed on the edge and written without even them having to, to write it personally themselves over and over again, they do that as composers. That's what composers do. We get given briefs, we write them, and then we get given another brief and we write to it. Well, commercial composers, obviously people write music, you know, for their own communicative reasons and lots of people express art and for, for many different ways. And who are we to say how they should be doing that? If someone wants to use an AI tool to increase their output, then who are we to say they can't? I think the crucial part about the Darcy system is that everything is the productivity tree. Everything just moves up a level. So composers can become these meta composers. Users can become composers. And people who experience music can, everyone kind of goes up a level of being able to experience music creation in a different way, in the way that they want to as well, whether that be from the very top level of meta creation to actually, can I choose what drums are here, please? Can I choose what bass is here? Can I have a rise in, I want my video to have a climax here and, and have some control over what that music is saying rather than having music as a static artifact. Why should music be a static artifact? Nothing else is. It's the last static artifact in personalization. So let's not be left behind as, as musicians and as composers. Let's embrace it, I say. If this technology is being used in music, how might something like this transcend to other sectors in the creative industry? Might we be using AI in the fashion industry in terms of there being fashion designers that are machines? Or might we see this transcend to films where scripts are, are being constructed by machines and picking up on nuance, which traditionally only humans would have been able to do that. So what does the future look like from your perspective in terms of the way that machines are emulating what humans have traditionally only been able to do? It's a great question. It's a great question. I think I see a world where it's colourful, it's rich, it's expressive, it's empowering for everyone in it. Now, if someone 
has a skill or if someone has something that they want to communicate, I'm, I'm thinking of a very specific story in mind here. I still vocal coach and one of my um, pupils is a wonderful amazing inspiring girl called Jazzy and she's had um, several obstacles she's um, dyslexic she's dyspraxic she's autistic and she has what is what is viewed as lots of, of barriers to being able to do things what she is is an absolutely brilliant songwriter she can create melodies and comes up with absolutely fantastic lyrics what she isn't is someone who can program and use technological um, things that are currently out there, doors, et cetera, to be able to get translate what's in her head into something that the world can maybe understand a bit better and listen to and respect. So we did a collaboration with Darcy and, and Jazzy to bring one of her songs to life and to, and to be able to, for people to hear it. Now, you could say, oh, this is replacing a human. But from Jazzy's perspective, it was allowing her to be heard and allowing her to create and allowing her to feel one of the things that she, as she said at the end, I said, Jazzy, are you proud of this? And she said, am I allowed to be? You know, And I think that was such a powerful thing to hear from someone who may would never have necessarily had this opportunity without a lot of help from teachers or whatnot to be able to express and to be able to feel this pride and, and to have herself heard. Now, if that is the way this future world looks, then sign me up a hundred percent. It may be that someone similar to Jazzy wants to write a film or wants to express themselves in whatever way. If we can enhance and empower that, then absolutely. I think that's a wonderful world to live in and it's not, replacing anyone it's it's allowing these people to join the party <laughs> you know all of us to join a party and hey i i, de I definitely need some fashion help so sign me up to <laughs> sign me up to that tech <laughs> in the same vein thinking about how ai will affect jobs specifically in the future i think a massive conversation topic at the moment is the way ai will do things traditionally done by humans and that then leave certain jobs redundant or make human work redundant. And in this case, I think a potential fear of some people would be that the job of the music composer might be left redundant. But I'm wondering what your response is to that and what your response is to people saying, well, does that delegitimize the job of a composer that, you know, something that's existed for, for many, many years and is, is an integral part of culture? What is your response to that? The way we look at this is we're not thinking to be replacing composers. What we think we are going to achieve is a replacing an aspect of the composition process. Composers are integral to Darcy and the way that Darcy works. It is a tool for composers. Instead of them giving one set of output, they can express their thoughts and their intent to allow that to be briefed and to be used in many different places. Short of putting each composer in everyone's living room as they're playing a game and like a silent pianist, then go alongside. There is no way that a composer currently can write to every single brief that they might possibly be able to write out there. What we're saying to them is like, if you have a tool like Darcy, you can. You can carry on writing, but you just end up writing a lot more, <laughs> you know, a lot more for, uh, for, for many different um, scenarios. 
it's not the composer that's being taken out of the loop. It's their process that's being enhanced. And that's the crucial thing about Darcy. Composers are really integral to the whole system. Now, I think if if people are worried about it or they think, oh, this is going to replace something that is very human, I invite everyone to, to come and see and, and talk to us about it. And we're very interested in all of those opinions as to how these are the users, these are the people that as we went, we were saying before that they can shape this tool, they can shape how they use it. It's interesting that, you know, Joe always says that back in, you know, 20 years ago, he'd go into a pub and, and someone would say, what do you do? And he'd say, oh, I'm a composer. And they'd go, oh, amazing. That's, that's really fantastic. That's, now you go into a pub, it's like, what do you do? I'm a composer. Oh yeah, I am too. I'm my mate over there is, and that person is over there. You know, tech has helped so many people say that they're composers because they are, they're, they're writing music. This is just now saying it's the next step of bringing that kind of knowledge into a tool that is allowing more people to say that they're composers. Why not? If they're writing music, it doesn't matter what level people are writing music. They don't have had to have gone to the Royal Academy to have written it. Obviously, we are very respectful of music makers. Most of the team are composers. Most of the team are musicians. We have some amazing um, musicians in the team and we're all quite excited because we're going, okay, well, this is our, this is the next tool that we can use here. So I think we're not in the business of replacing composers. We're, we're in a business of enhancing their process. <laughs> And it does come back to the idea of democratizing music production. But I do just want to touch on a different aspect of your journey scaling your business. And earlier this year, you secured four million pounds in seed funding. What was your process of securing this funding? And were there any challenges that you faced during this period? And how did you navigate those? So we're, we're still currently in that round. So we're still, we're still in that fundraising cycle as such. One of the important things with all of this is we're always going to be seeking investment. We're always, there's always going to be money and there's always going to be things that are needed to be raised in order for us to do what we need to do. One of the main challenges that, and I think that every probably startup has, is being able to clearly express what it is they're doing and how it is they're doing it and why it is they need the funding in order for whether it be a five minute pitch or a three hour session in an office to have uh, investors understand why you're doing what you're doing and how it is you're doing what you're doing and, and what they're investing in. A lesson I've learned over the years is that you cannot presume that anyone has understood what you're um, saying when you say it, whether that be in a C-suite or whether that be a team member or whether that be an investor. So it's being able to explain what you're doing clearly so that people can understand it and, and then themselves buy into it and appreciate it. And for something like composition, if you're talking to people from a finance world or uh, from some of people who necessarily aren't musicians, it's like, well, you have to kind of explain what composition is uh, on a high level so that people can understand the process of, of, of what, you know, it is that we're trying to do. Um, I think it was a, a podcast, the Patreon um, founder, he said he went and did, you know, hundreds of pitches and he said, oh, he wasn't getting anywhere. It's because people didn't realise what content creators were. So when he explained that part of 
his business, then, oh, okay, I understand what you're trying to do now. It's the same with us. And I think that's been one of the challenges of we've had some amazingly brave and brilliant investors that came into our seed who really believe in what we're doing and are really supportive of what we're doing. But we had to explain clearly enough to them for them to, um, to, to get it. And I think that if, if when, when pitches don't succeed, I think feedback that we have can be, we just weren't quite sure, we weren't quite sure what it is or, or, or how it's working. I work with a, an amazing CCO who's just relentlessly all day, every day, um, knocking on the doors, making the opportunities, looking for strategic partnerships to help with our roadmap. And it's this constant, not battle, I wouldn't say it's a battle, but a constant process of telling the world who we are, asking for people to support us, to believe in us, to strategically give us their expertise that we we might not have in certain areas. And it's allowing us, allowing, I think, and being really honest with where you are in your journey and allowing and asking for the help and asking for the feedback from investors to enable the, the next step all the time. Obviously, you have founded the business with your brother, Joe, but I read somewhere recently that it was something like 3% of VC funding goes to female-founded businesses, only 3%. Is that something that you have faced as, as a barrier for yourself? Maybe even not in terms of funding, but in terms of scaling the business in general? I've thought a lot about this. I thought a lot, because especially within the industry that I've come from, you know, female composers, there are amazing female composers out there, but kind of majority, you know, if you look at the ratios, there's there's less of them per se out there within the industry than men. Now, a lot of it, I think, and I try to be aware about this, is that how much of it is because I'm a female? How much of it is because I'm, I'm young? Obviously, this is, you know, Darcy, it's in its early stages. As a CEO, I'm in an early stage part of, of my journey as well. And I try to look at the, the environment that I'm in with an open mind. I'm, and I'm hoping that it's not because I'm a female that we, we come up against barriers. I think inevitably there will be bias. But it's not necessarily just within the tech industry and and, and the acceptance of uh, a female CEO within that world. I think it's just general, whether it be conscious or unconscious, there's probably a slight bias still um, out there. However, I do really, well, I'm hoping, uh, maybe I'm thinking of this positively. I do believe that there is a shift happening and we are, as females, being more embraced. and, And I think there is... There's an effort being made for the world to be more inclusive uh, in that way. And I'm hoping that I'm not kind of like (laughs) blinkered like a horse, but I cannot walk into a room expecting the bias, because if I do, then I'm already on a defensive. I'm already, oh, okay, I'm already, I've already failed. I have to go into that room thinking, well, I know more about this than the person I'm about to speak to. Can I clearly explain to them? If they then are biased towards me, then that is something that we have to work through and we have to think about. But I can't enter a world feeling that that is my, my, the first thing that I have to deal with or else I won't be able to do my job. So I think it's the, the answer is, yes, I have experienced it, but I don't presume I always will, because if I do, then that'll be more trouble. <laughs> you know, we have to be open minded. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective and insight. Thanks, Rachel. That does bring us to the end of the podcast. And we like to finish every podcast episode with a segment called Answer the Internet. And this is where we scour the internet for the questions that the public needs answers to. 
And this question is from Reddit and it's from a user called Jaded Ravenclaw. And they ask, how do people get AI to do what they want? That's a great question. How do people get AI to do what they want? Well, it depends on what you want it to do, I suppose. It's all about the data set. If an AI isn't doing what you want it to do, have you taught it intelligently what you want it to do in the first place is, is a really like kiddie answer to it. But whether it be an AI or a human brain, brains learn and they can only learn and develop skills on, on what they're taught. So if you, if something is spouting out something in an AI that you think, well, what's going on here? It's like, well, what have I told it? What have I, what data have I given it in the first place? So I think we just need to be intelligent with what we're teaching AI and what we're teaching each other. (laughs) And I think that, that, you know, if we can combine, if we can solve that problem, then, Hey, wouldn't, wouldn't the world be a great place? But I think we need to take responsibility of what we're asking AI to do ourselves. That's a really interesting insight into that. Our next question, we ask all of our guests and we are Business Leader Magazine. And this question is, what makes a great business leader? Personally, I am surrounded by a lot of smart people and a lot of people who are very skilled and have a lot of things to say and a lot of um, things to give and contribute I think a a great business leader or the type of leader that I would want and strive to be myself is to, um, I suppose, have this collection. I, you know, I go, I go back to music, but have this, um, collection, this orchestra of minds and allow those minds to play their instruments in the best possible way they can and be the conductor at the front of that orchestra who, to help bring those minds together so that they're not playing in different tempos and in different keys and in uh, in different styles, allowing those minds to play their their skills and to 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 play their instruments together, as well as being that conductor who the invention and the system, the original composer behind the idea, have that translated as well. So be be basically the kind of this midpoint of the big picture and the collection of really smart people who can contribute and do their jobs better than you can, I can play an oboe in an orchestra. I'll leave that to the the skilled person who spent their entire life practicing their field of expertise. I can't presume, and I don't think leaders should presume to know everything and to be able to play all their instruments and be the problem solver for every single thing. But if a great leader can enable that orchestra to make beautiful music together, (laughs) then companies can can do the same, I think. Yeah, thank you, Rachel. That that was a really great answer. And our final question is whether you have any final words for our audience today. I would say the thing that keeps me going about things is whether it be say yes to opportunities or say yes to everything, whether it be, um, you know, my other, my husband calls it increasing your luck surface area. I don't know where he got that from, but allow yourself the opportunity to do that very thing give yourself opportunities to experience or to open yourself up to insights or possibilities that you might not do if you if you're closed off if I'm worried about um in my own sense of oh am I doing a good job am I am I leading this efficiently and also with the team is people wouldn't ask people to do things if they didn't think they could 
I wouldn't be asked to sing a gig if they didn't think I could sing. So if you can think that about other people and you can think that of yourself, I think it wastes a lot less time than, oh, well, I've been asked to do this thing. I don't think I can do it. Well, you've been asked to do it. So yes, you can. And I think if I'd have thought that to myself 20, 30 years ago, I think I maybe would have got places a lot quicker or <laughs> a lot sooner. And having that kind of confidence to allow yourself to say yes and allow yourself to not be worried about if someone's if someone's putting expectations. Even, you know, for instance, this podcast was like, oh gosh, I'm not sure I should do this podcast, but hey, I've done it now. <laughs> I've allowed myself to say yes to it and it's been great fun. 